Thanks for checking out the Tennessee Holler Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Subscribe to and support the Holler at www.tnholler.com to help us fearlessly yell the truth about Tennessee. And be sure to subscribe to the growing family of Holler Podcasts while you're there. You can also follow the Holler on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the TN Holler. We are back for another live interview here at the Tennessee Holler. I'm Justin Canoe, the Holler founder, and I'm with Mariah Phillips, my good friend Mariah Phillips today. Mariah, how are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me on, Justin. I really appreciate it. Of course. Before we get started, I just want to let everybody know we're at tnholler.com, at the tnholler on Twitter and Facebook. And we are also at the Borough Holler on Twitter and Facebook. That's one of the regional hollers that we have. Knoxville, Memphis, Chattanooga, Cookville, Tri-Cities, the Borough, and also we're in West Virginia. And that's because you guys have been so supportive. So thank you very, very much. If you have a few bucks today, give it to Mariah. If you got a few more than that, give it to us. Uh, your small dollar donations really help us and keep us going. Mariah, so yeah. this is a special interview because you and I have known each other a long time and we became close when we were both running for Congress yes. in 2018. That's right. We shared Murray County. so and We shared uh, a county. That's right. We did do that. Yeah. So um, we saw each other quite a bit, uh, you know, crossing the, tr- the street, knocking doors. So uh, there are literally streets in Murray County where one side of the street was in my district and the other side of the street was in yours. People can comment along and ask questions. I'm going to ask some questions here too, but I, I wanted to start by going back to the end of that race and what were you feeling after that race and how did we get to the decision to run for a state house seat? Yeah. So, um, so when I finished the campaign in 2018, um, you know, we did really well uh, for, uh, for a race for a Democrat in rural Tennessee. Um, we did really well. I was very proud of the work that we did. We had a ton of organizers and we raised a lot of money. We did a lot of work. Um, at the end of that campaign, um, you know, I, I knew that I wasn't done, but I didn't know if running for Congress right away was what was right for my family. Um, as you know, I have five children and, uh, my husband was like, you know, exhausted. He was as exhausted as I was. And uh, um, so so we kind of talked about what we wanted to do and weren't really sure uh, right away. But I knew I was still going to be in the fight. Uh, one of the things that I learned when I ran for Congress, um, and I'm sure you learned this as well, is that so many of the things that I was fighting for on the national level, healthcare, education, equality and equity, those things actually have an even greater impact by the decisions made in our state legislature. And so I could actually more directly impact the things that I cared about um, in the state house than I, than I really would even on a national level. So as much work that needs to be done in Washington, DC, we have even more work to do right here at home. So I figured, um, you know, when I look back at the numbers and I won 47% of the district in, in uh, the state house district 37, I thought, you know what? Rather than run myself ragged in 16 counties to maybe, you know, move the needle a little bit more, 
let me run a race I know I can win right here at home in Rutherford County and um, continue to fight for the things because I'm not here just to run for office. I'm here because I want to get elected so that I can make the changes that I'm so that I'm so passionate about. So dive into that a little bit more. How yeah. winnable is this district? Yeah, so um, so this is actually one of the the districts that is very purple. Like I said, um, I got forty seven percent of the vote. Bredesen got forty eight percent of the vote here. In- where where is it? So yeah, so this is the northwest part of Rutherford County. It borders Davidson County. It's um, part of Murfreesboro. It's kind of a quarter of Murfreesboro, and then half of Smyrna and Laverne. So um, old Nashville Highway right into Nashville, uh, you're right going right in the middle of my district. And so um, so it's a very diverse community. It's a community where a lot of people have moved in growth. There's been a lot of growth in this area. As you know, Rutherford County is um, the 10th fastest growing county in the country. And so uh, a lot of people have moved here with you know different ideas. Um, a lot of growth has happened here. Um, businesses have moved here, which brought people as well. And, you know, this, there's a lot of diversity that exists in Rutherford County. People that have been um, unable to afford a home ownership in, in Nashville have had to move a little bit east into Rutherford County. And um, so there's been, um, there's really a growth that's happening here. But one of the things that also makes this seat so winnable it is, it's also actually a, an area where a lot of people haven't turned out to vote. As populated as it is and as diverse as it is, we just don't have a high turnout number here. And so- um, That's the def- true all over the state. <laughs> it is true all over the state, but it's especially true if you look at the other districts, especially in Rutherford County, in this particular area. And so um, so we know that in, in, uh, in District 49, which is another very purple district here in Rutherford County, the Democrat there lost by uh, about 1,100 votes. The Democrat in my seat uh, lost by le- about 3,000 votes. So it's not that these numbers are not possible. Um, it's just people need to believe that they have a candidate that is gonna fight for them and they have to be willing to show up for me so that I could show up for them. And just people haven't really been overly motivated um, to show up. So we did turn out um, increased numbers in 2018 and we wanna continue to do that work in, um, in 2020. Well, it seems to me that if you're not motivated to show up for Mariah, Marquita, and then to vote for or against Donald Trump for Biden and, and Kamala, Chances are you're probably not going to do much voting in your lifetime. This is now the time to get out there and register to vote. How are you seeing folks' engagement, folks' excitement, you know, and or can you even see it because of the nature of the way you're having to campaign in a pandemic? Is it possible to get a handle on the district? It is. um, We have been actually using a lot of um, measures such as social media, of course. Um, We've been texting and making phone calls for months now um, and, you know, really trying to to connect to um, the non-voters. And that that population is really important. We've had um, over 8000 people in this district who have either uh, registered to vote since 2016 but have not yet voted or have not voted since 2012. And so if you think about that population, that's 8,000 people that haven't been um, engaged since 2012. They have not yet been purged. They may be if they don't have 
if Secretary of Voter Suppression Trey Hargett has anything to do with it. That's right. That's right. They're they're you know one election away from getting purged, and so um so this is the time. So we're really reaching out to those particular voters to find out um you know what side of their the the um. The value system they're on. I don't even want to say the aisle. I want to say the value system because I believe when you talk to people, when you actually engage in conversation, we all want the same things. We want um, to a better life for our, our kids. We want them to make sure that they have access to a great education. We want to make you know take them to the my or children to the hospital when they're sick. You know, we we all want the same things. We might have some different ideas on how to get there, but at the end of the day you know, we're, we're all walking down the same street. And so we want to make sure that uh, when we talk to people, we're talking about our values and what our end goal is, which is making sure that our, our children have a better life than we had. Well, I believe in everything you're saying. And, you know, we always talked about that when we had our events, how these shouldn't be partisan issues. We are one of the last states not to expand Medicaid and take a billion dollars a year. We're, you know, at the bottom in poverty, at the bottom in infant and maternal mortality, last in medical bankruptcies, last in rural hospital closures per capita. But it's hard to get people to hear that. And, you know, I, I hope that they're actually hearing that message and understanding what they're losing by not having more candidates like you in the state legislature. Uh, you're running against Charlie Baum. Mm-hmm. What has he been on the wrong side of? Um, well, he has, you know, it's interesting. People, when um, they find out that they're represented by Charlie Baum in my district, um, they actually, most people have never heard of him. Uh, he's not very active. He's not very uh, engaged in the community. And um, so he, you know, he's just not present. Um, you know, I believe you need to have a representative that can represent you. And unless you, go to the country club or teach economics at MTSU, you probably don't know who he is. Um, and so is he a teacher, he's a professor at MTSU. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, he's one of the, those, uh, um, professors, the heritage foundation sponsored professors who, uh, you know, um, think that, um, anything that the government, um, does is bad. And so, I don't know why he works in a public university and is an elected official if government is um, <laughs> not designed to help the people. But, um, you know, uh, he's been on the wrong side of pretty much everything. You know, he's a he's a nice guy uh, when people that's what people who know him say. But um, he doesn't vote in a nice way. You know, he's the biggest thing that um, people have been. And he's not a nice guy. Well, I agree. <laughs> um, but the biggest thing that he has gotten a lot of um, a lot of heat for was his vote on the voucher bill. Um, he has been on the the City Schools Foundation board, which is like their fundraising apparatus here in, in Murfreesboro City Schools uh, for many years. Um, but when he had the opportunity to actually support teacher education and teacher funding um, in the state house, he didn't. He made sure that he voted for the voucher bill. Um, and in fact, he believes um, that the um, that p- possibly education should be run like a business, in which case, um, maybe by having students accept vouchers, that um, competitive competitiveness will be good for the public schools and maybe they'll become more competitive with the private schools. Now, we both know that there's no way by removing dollars from our public education system that's already underfunded that we're going to provide a more competitive experience, um, you know, to compared to some of the well-funded private schools that exist in our communities. 
what's been fascinating is how all of the people who support vouchers suddenly find the public school system so valuable and important in a pandemic. And we must have our kids back in school in person, even as they underfund it and cut funding and block amendments that would add funding. Suddenly the public school system is the most important thing. And hopefully they'll remember that the next time amendments are up to put another $150 million into our education system. By the way, we just found out we had a, actually a surplus budget rather than a deficit and they still cut the teacher pay raises that they had promised. So there's a lot going on. And, you know, we definitely need more people up there like Mariah speaking out uh, ab about these things rather than ghosts like Charlie. But they did not they did not uh, cut the funding for the ESA plan. So, right. um, so while teachers are on the chopping block in a time when most businesses who are, you know, compassionate towards their employees are actually providing um some kind of an emergency pay or, or hazard pay for working in the middle of a pandemic, um, they're actually not even getting the promised pay raises that they that they deserved. And so, um, but that educational savings account program, that's just as funded as it ever was. Right. Well, I wanted to ask you about another thing that I saw you talk about in uh, the recent days. You talked about... Uh, my opponent costing taxpayers over $1.3 million to punish people exercising their First Amendment rights. There's nothing fiscally conservative about that. That was in reference to the pro anti-protester bill that just passed yes. where protesters were essentially targeted and their First Amendment rights are threatened for a felony camping bill, which yes. seeks to essentially silence them because they had been protesting down for 62 days down at the Capitol. Uh, what did you think about what happened and how did you feel about bombs vote there? You know, I think that it's, you know, people that are, are putting the, the, the rights of our American citizens. I mean, this is a constitutional right. I'm a U.S. government teacher, right? I mean, this is basic freedom of speech, right to petition. I mean, you know, every First Amendment um, violation um, is is written into this bill. And um, so when you're looking at this particular bill, we know that it's going to um, be turned over to the court system because it's unconstitutional. They cannot increase penalties for um, for people having the right to speak their mind to petition on state grounds like this is this is this bill is bad for the constitution it's bad for our economy 1.3 million dollars to increase penalties there's mandatory sentencing that accompanies this bill um and um, you can see how the different things that have happened over the last 62 days um that this protest went on as well as the things that had been going on for months prior with, um, you know, since Justin Jones, we all know Justin Jones is somebody who's been actively a part of the protest movement there um, for many years. Um, there was actually pieces of the, of the legislation that was written just for him. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe that targeted him specifically. And, um, you know, there was um, increase, there's already penalties for, um, assault on police officers and things like this. And this bill just increased the penalty. It increased the, um, um, the felony for felony camping. 
I mean, come on. <laughs> um, and it's it's six years potentially. Yeah. It's 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 unbelievable. You just had the editors of the USA Today Network come together and call it abhorrent. Uh, I just want to address one comment that we have here. I don't know who this is, but this is disappointed WPT. I'm for vouchers. Public school has turned out the kids out on the street now rioting for Marxism. So just to dissect that for a second, there's nobody out in the streets right now rioting for anything. And this talking point about Marxism that has been dragged out because the initial members of Black Lives Matter mentioned that they were trained Marxists. First of all, you probably couldn't tell me what Marxism is, but Black Lives Matter has taken on a different meaning than just the original group. This now means that people want equality and social justice for all Americans. And so to dismiss it by calling them Marxists, it's just a talking point. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And it completely ignores the root of the problem, which is police brutality and social justice. So you can blame public schools for some phantom problem that you're seeing. But at the end of the day, that problem is not a real problem. The real problem is the police brutality. And these are people that are in pain and we need to listen to them. I wonder if uh, that particular um, listener would be interested if a, a private school was started based on Marxism and vouchers went to fund a education system that was based on Marxism. Because according to our you know, um, private school system, we could have one. And right. so, um, so there we could have a, a private school that teaches that and public school money could or be God forbid a, a Muslim school, you know, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, our public schools are really valuable. We've seen the value of them in this pandemic. We now have even Republicans saying we must get our kids back there. Yeah. And meanwhile, we underfund them here. We have an F in education funding. And when Republicans say we fully fund our BEP, our BEP hasn't been updated in a decade. And so that's like saying we're fully funding something that's very underfunded. And so we need to raise what we're spending on our education system. And to do that, we need different people in our legislature and in the governorship. Yeah, if I can add, you know, I was a U.S. government teacher here in Rutherford County Schools, and I took great pride in that role as a teacher. And as a teacher, I always felt that um, one of the most important things that I could do is not teach my students what to think. A lot of my students didn't know what political leanings I, I fell into. Um, they would always try to trick me and and outsmart me, outthink me and ask me questions to stump me and try to figure out who I was voting for. But I found that it was very important for me not to teach my students what to think, but to think them to teach them how to think more deeply for themselves. And um, when they would come um, to me with a question or a challenge, I always, you know, tried to divert that into thinking about why they um, felt the way that they did and, and where their value systems were formed. And so I think there's there's just it's such a disservice to our public educators to say that we are, um, you know, forming their minds into some kind of Marxist gelatin or something. And ironically, it's like these repeated talking points that continue to to come forward from the other side of the aisle. Um, <laughs> those are actually just not critical thinking that right. repetitive. It's just Marxism, socialism, like they don't actually want to talk about 
what people are actually calling for and the specific yeah. reforms. Like if we could get past the gross generalizations and talk about what people are actually calling for, like accountability for police officers or Medicaid expansion or raising the minimum wage above seven twenty-five an hour, which is impossible to live on, which actually leads to corporate welfare. Like just naming things, Marxism and socialism, it just shows that you don't have an argument and that you haven't really thought it through. And all you're doing is parroting the stuff people like Bill Haggerty are running around saying. So it's hard to have a conversation with somebody that just wants to throw labels on everything. If you want to drill down and have a real conversation about the policy, then, then we can talk. But until then, all you're doing is showing that your fingers are in your ears and you're not willing to listen. And we're never going to get anywhere doing that. And in fact, you're actually probably hurting yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so what are the things that people are caring about? I, I and, and also, I want to know how people can help you. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the uh, the things that people are caring about when I'm talking to them are, you know, education actually is a big piece, uh, making sure that our students are returning to school safely, making sure that the um, um, that there are are efforts in our school system to distance uh, distance learn whenever possible, to maintain social distancing for our students, um, to make sure that they're wearing masks. Um, it's very disappointing how our state leadership did not provide any guidance or direction or assistance to our, our local school districts when trying to roll out these procedures for back to school. I wish that our state government would have provided some leadership, some direction, um, better than multi-million dollar commercials to encourage us to wear a mask, um, actually requiring it and, and telling our school districts, you know, how they can um, implement safe, you know, CDC uh, guidelines to uh, protect our students, protect our teachers would have been the right thing to do. So education on all fronts is something that I hear a lot of people talking about. And then of course, healthcare um, is an ongoing topic. Um, we've had I think 30,000 uh, uh, Rutherford Countyans who have lost their health care due to COVID uh, when they've lost their jobs. And so um, we are dealing with um, an additional crisis on top of the one that we already had prior to an international pandemic. Uh, when people lose their jobs, they lose their health care. That's one of the reasons we need to expand Medicaid, because we need to detach our health care from our employer. We should no longer make our employer responsible for taking care of our health, um, because it actually takes it out of our hands when we do that. I know a lot of people who have actually stayed with a job because of the health care plan that they had, even though the job wasn't good for themselves. Oh, I mean, I we're, I'm living it. You know, I mean, really like yeah. that's a hundred percent why life decisions get made is because your job has benefits and you feel like, how are you going to cover your health insurance for your kids if you leave and think about the power that that puts in the hand of employers and takes out of the hands of workers in yeah. America. And I don't understand, frankly, how anybody could be against taking uh, detaching, as you said, healthcare from our employment status at this point, having gone through what we've just gone through. And also I'd like to add that there is no moral reason to only cover the sicknesses of people who are sick with COVID and their treatment and let people who are sick with other things mm -hmm. die or worse, you know, or, or go bankrupt or worse. You know, there are only political reasons for that. Either we're taking care of each other or we're not. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, and then Obamacare cost a fortune. Obamacare has 
saved a lot of lives. If you run for office, you'll have people come up to you all over the place and tell you how Obamacare has saved them. Obamacare is why people with pre-existing conditions can't get kicked off their insurance and why and me as Trump is suing to make it possible to kick people with pre-existing conditions off their insurance. He's also saying out loud that he wants to protect those people. And he's doing that because that's something that's very popular. And that's something that Obamacare did for us. So again, whoever you are, please do some Googling. Feel free to reach out to us, the tnholler at gmail.com with questions. Happy to set you straight, but it seems like you're pretty confused and you know we'd love to help. Uh, Mariah4tn.com is where you can help her out. Yes. That's in uh, Rutherford County oh, entirely, right? That's the only county. Yeah, northwest part of Rutherford County, uh, Smyrna, Laverne, and part of Murfreesboro um, primarily. Um, go to my website. You can volunteer to um, make some phone calls for us. Um, door knock. We have uh, CDC guidelines for door knocking. We have started door knocking um, socially distant, um, but we are doing that. And of course, if you can make a contribution to our campaign, we'd really appreciate appreciate that as well. Your contribution helps us connect to more voters. Okay, great. And then just as a last thing, because this person's still coming, Medicaid costs taxpayers a fortune. What actually costs us a fortune is not expanding Medicaid. We lose a billion dollars a year. Every year we don't expand Medicaid and we're paying that money anyway. That money is just going to other states. It's why we're number one in medical bankruptcies. It's why we have rural hospitals closing all over the state. It's why we're at the bottom in poverty, infant mortality, maternal mortality. It's why our opioid deaths are going up while the states around us are going down. Mariah wrote an article about this comparing our healthcare system to one in Kentucky that did expand Medicaid. Google it. Uh, again, you really have a lot of bad information and I'd like to help set you straight. Mariah. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Add one more thing on top of that. And I know we're trying to wrap up, but um, you know, when, when we expand Medicaid in the state and we give um, more people access to healthcare, those of us with health insurance already actually will pay lower premiums. Our medical costs will go down when more people have access to health insurance. Because we pay for them anyway. We're already paying for them. Right. If somebody is sick, they're going to go to the hospital and they're going to get the care that they need to survive. And that bill is going to come back to us, either as taxpayers or through increased insurance rates. And so by giving more people better health care options, we're actually making it better for us. And when you and, and she's saying people abuse the system, think about what you're saying, abusing the system by getting health care. By going to the doctor. Like, yeah, by going to the doctor. So, you know, abusing the healthcare system is just getting treatment for you being sick. Mm -hmm. So I would be willing to bet that whoever you are considers yourself a Christian because most people do in this state, we were supposed to take care of each other. That is what's yeah. in that book. I, I suggest you read it. And at the end of the day, we should be taking care of each other. So abusing the system is really just taking care of yourself. And I'm okay with people abusing the system that way. Mariah, good luck to you. Thank you. Stay in touch. I hope you win. And, uh, and take well, care of yourself. I will. See you on the other side, Justin. All right. Take care, Mariah. Thank you.